Hey, everyone. <laughs> Who is excited to be here today? Yes. That was kind of weak, not going to lie. So hopefully you are a little bit more energized inside. Um, but I'm so glad that you guys are here. We are glad to um, lead worship today. We have some new faces. We have Carissa and my sister Ainsley. She's her first time singing up here. Um, so yeah, let's stand on up and worship our God. Look how he lifted me. 
Well, good morning. It sure is good to see everybody here this hour. Um, good to be all in the building together again. Um, I would like to ask you to do us a couple of favors. Um, one, be very aware of if a pew is closed or open, uh, because we're still trying to do the social distancing thing. Um, you know that we've had some issues with that, with spikes around this time of year, so we want to be cognizant of that and um, also the idea of wearing masks and, and huddling together. Um, let's make sure we continue to be spread out and as best we can safeguard our ability to meet together as a church family and guard those around us. So it's, it's not convenient, but it is a way for us to, to be able to continue to meet in a safe fashion where everybody is comfortable in this building. So thank you for being diligent in that. Um, I am glad that you're here. A couple things I want to remind you of. We will not meet on Wednesday night this week because of Thanksgiving. So um, enjoy the time, whether you're traveling or whether you're at home. Enjoy that time and be safe during that time. The other thing is you see in the front some of the poinsettias. You know, we're doing a fundraiser for that. And part of those funds are going several different places. They'll go to... Um, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, they'll go to help with our um, angel tree at Cameron Park. They'll also go towards some youth scholarships. So, um, so make sure you tap into that. If you just click on the, on the banner for that, it'll take you to the event page on Realm, and then you can sign up for as many of these as you'd like. These, and you can see the size of them, and they will get redder as we go. Um, they are $8.00. So it's an incredible deal. So, um, so check that out. And it is going to help so many different things moving forward. So um, look forward to how God's going to use that. Um, I, I am excited. You know, at the end of the service this morning, we're going to um, be called into business meeting and we're going to discuss our, our 2021 budget. So I encourage you to stick around. We'll do some discussion and vote on that as we get ready for the new year. Uh, let's go ahead and pray. Um, I do want to say if you're a guest with us, if you would take the Connect card in the pew pocket in front of you, if you would fill that out and turn it in at the end of the service in one of the buckets or swing by the, the welcome desk in the back, um, we've got a gift for you. Uh, the other thing, I'm sorry, get, go, get going and think about different things. Um, you probably noticed a change in the foyer. Um, there are several people that work very diligently on that. Um, and if I start naming them, I will, I will forget somebody. So I'm not going to do that. Um, just know that there's, and I will come up with a list, but there, there's a group of about 10 folks that worked on that and put all those, put the walls together and the lights and all the rest of it. So um, we'll be thanking them moving forward. And um, it is still an unfinished work. So I'm looking forward to how that's going to be finished up in the next few days. Let's pray together and we'll continue in our worship. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the um, opportunity to be in this place as the body of Christ, um, all gathered in one service. And Father, although it is, it is even tight as we try and spread out in here, God, it is good. And um, we just appreciate you um, allowing us to do that. We want to be led by you. We want to be careful and wise in this, but we also want to uh, be able to praise you together as a corporate body, and lift up your name. Father, I thank you this morning for 
our, our youth band as they lead our worship this morning, how you're working in their lives, and Father, how you're going to work in our lives as we not just worship, but as we study your word. And so God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would have the freedom to work in this place this morning. We love you, we praise you, we want you to be glorified in here. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and turn, look at somebody, wave at them, and then we'll continue our worship. All right, before we continue, um, I wanted to read uh, a little section from a sermon I listened to um, way back in March. Uh, it comes from 2 Kings verse, uh, chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, and it says, When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? His master, Elisha, said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So based, um, based off of that sermon, I wrote... Um, I guess a little summary of that little excerpt from 2 Kings. I wrote, Why would we let something so small cloud out and block out something so much bigger and more powerful? We need to open our eyes to see that there are more things for us than against us. God's plan for us, God's plan and provision is so much greater than anything else. Let God use his miracle math to show us that we are not outnumbered, but merely have the wrong perspective. Don't let fear get a hold of you and control you. Trust God and allow him to open our eyes and realize that he is in control. God did not answer Elisha's prayer by eliminating the enemy. He illuminated his presence. So if you're unfamiliar with that story of Elisha, they're literally surrounded by an army. So like, this is Elisha. We're Elisha in the city and all around us is like the U.S. Army or something like with their artillery and tanks or whatever. So we're completely outnumbered. We're going to die. But God says, no, 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 no. Open your eyes because I'm actually more than what you see. We, we can't understand what God has for us because obviously we're not God. We're his creation. Um, so if you've been having a hard time through these past couple months like a lot of people have, I want you to realize that um, what you see in front of you and what's going on in the world is so small compared to what's going up um, with God. So I hope that encouraged you, um, and let's continue worship. Kingdoms will bow down. 
Your name 
God, thank you for all that you're doing for us and all that you have done for us and all that you will do for us. Um, I pray that you will be over the message that uh, Pastor Bob brings. Um, and thank you for allowing us and giving the privilege to worship you freely every day of the year. In the your name I pray, amen. start to look other places and miss what's there. Um, I think it's because Owen's so tall. I just never saw it at, at, at that line. So uh, 
If you're wondering what that was, I, um, the, the microphone found the top of my head. The, uh, it is good to see you. I, um, I so appreciate the youth band and them sharing this morning and, um, and what Owen shared that, that God had been teaching you from, from Scripture. Um, it's interesting to think about how big that picture is because God has this plan for us that is much greater than anything we could devise or dream up. You, you realize that, that what, what He's got in store for us is so much bigger and so much greater. And so we can look at things um, like our circumstances. Uh, we can look at the, the idea that you know, we're sitting the way we're sitting. Uh, it's interesting because we've been in two services. It's the first time back in one service. And some of you that have been coming at 9 o'clock or at 10.30 realize that if you didn't get here as earlier today, you may miss out on where you normally sat. You lost your seat, which really messes with Baptists, doesn't it? You know, we've got our spaces, and we don't like folks in those spaces. And at this particular point, we, we look at it and we say, man, that, that is inconvenient. It's, it's kind of a pain to, to work through. And yet God has us in this spot. We get to worship together, which is great, and we, don't, we get to wear masks, which is not so great. But we, we do live in a country where we are still free to worship. At least at this point, we are free to do that. And so we're going to keep praying that God would allow us to meet, not, not as a response to COVID, but as a response to just the freedom to follow what God has for us, regardless of what's going on around us. And so as we start looking at this passage, we must comprehend, we must kind of get in our heart, get in our mind, that God's plan is so much glorious than anything that we could think of. And if we start with that premise that God is big and God is big enough to handle any situation, then all the concerns and the, and the things that we worry about or deal with, the things that cause us to have gray hair or lose hair, whatever that is, we can, we can almost put those things back just a little bit. And so this morning as we go through this passage, I don't want us to lose the fact that God is in control and that God's plan is much better and bigger than we can imagine. If we lose that, then we start to micromanage the things that we hear from Scripture and we say, that fits me or that doesn't fit me. We start making choices. And those choices may lead us to disobedience. So we must be very careful about realizing God's bigness and keep that forefront as we go through this passage. So there are two big questions that we answered today. And so let me we're going to throw the two big questions up on the board, up on the screen. So let's let's put the, the first one is with what are you comfortable and trusting to God? With what are you comfortable? You may have to click that again. There you go. There's the rest of that sentence. What are you comfortable in trusting to God? And we say, okay, that's, that's one, because we do trust things to God, don't we? And we trust our salvation. We're going to go through uh, a short list, 
But the second question for this morning is, what has God entrusted to you? What has God entrusted to you? Because we all have things that God has given us to steward. And so we're going to talk about that today. So let's go with the first question. With what, with what are you comfortable entrusting to God? Uh, immediately, we could say our salvation. We say, God, you're big enough to handle my salvation. So where I was going a different direction, you remember all those illustrations about going one direction and repenting and turning and going the other direction or moving away from God and turning to God. We trust God for our salvation. The way the, the psalmist put it in Psalm 9, uh, 9 and 10, it says, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble, and those who know your name put their trust in, in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsa forsaken those who seek you. God is the God of our salvation. Apart from Him, we are destined to spend eternity in hell, separated, completely separated forever from God. And so we trust God for our salvation. Psalms 62, 5-8 says, For God alone, my soul... Let me just flip over to it. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence, for hope is from Him. He, he only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. And so we could get in that spot, like Owen was talking about earlier, where we see what's around us as really big, and we forget that God is present. And in salvation, we trust Him with all that we are. Verse 8 says, Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. So He is our refuge, our strength, our salvation. We trust Him sometimes with material blessings. Or we trust Him for those. We trust Him for protection. You can jump over to, to Daniel chapter 3. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, this is Daniel 3, 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent His angel and delivered His servants, who put their trust in Him, violating the king's commands, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own God. It was a conscious choice to trust God and to rely on Him, to say, God, I entrust you with my life. And so we are comfortable in trusting God with protection or even health. You know, there's a lot of people dealing with health issues, but do we trust God with it? We know that God is a healer. We know that He provides, and sometimes He provides in miraculous ways, but sometimes he actually uses doctors and nurses and medicines to do that. Does it really matter how God provided it if God provided it? And so you may even have a doctor that says, I don't believe in God, but understand that the healing, the benefit, the blessing comes from God. So health. But what are we scared to entrust to God? What are the things where we step back and we say, God, I, I don't know if you can handle this. Say so one of those may be in marriage. 
You know, we, we get into um, times of intense discussion or, or times of intense fellowship. Um, and we, we look at those and we say, God, I don't know if I trust you with this marriage thing. I know what your word says, but if I follow your word and trust you, then I'm going to have to step out of my comfort zone to, to move this thing forward. So we may not trust God with our marriage. We, um, we may be scared to entrust God with our kids. And we can look at our kids and, you know, what if in our kids? What if God... We can, we can always see the, the negative in that and say, what if God doesn't? But what if God does? And what if God leads them to a place where we don't get to see them as much as we want to? What if God leads them to a foreign country and we don't get to spend time with our grandkids? How uncomfortable is that? Think about, um, think about the Browns in Kenya. Their parents... Tim and Laura's parents don't get to see the grandkids as often as they like. I guarantee it. But they've stepped out in obedience to follow him. So we may be scared with, our, with entrusting to God our kids or our jobs or financial security. If God leads me here, what will that mean for, for, my, for my own security? We make those kind of choices all the time. And sometimes we hang out in places because of the security, because we're afraid to trust God that He won't provide over here. And I'll tell you that God provides whether we realize it or whether we recognize that on the front end or not. Deb and I have wrestled with that over, over the 33 years of full-time ministry because I moved from, and I've told you this before, when I got called to ministry, I moved from a job that paid half again as much as I was making. I moved to a ministry that, that paid, inside the perimeter of Atlanta, $18,000. And I think, you know, that was financially dumb. But as following God, it became apparent that, that God was leading, and we just trusted Him to provide. Did that make that choice tons easier? No. It just made the choice and got confirmed by following God and God taking care of us in the process. So we're always faced with those kind of choices. So jobs, financial security, even reputation. On any given Sunday, if God leads you to something, you say, you know what, I'm going to stay here in my seat during invitation, although I know God is calling me to step forward and repent of something or give up something or commit to something, but I'm not moving because I'm afraid of what everybody else in the room will think of me if I do. We won't entrust our lives to God in that sense because we're afraid of what somebody else will think and we're less worried about what God will think. We've got to place our trust in Him and realize that He has what's best for us in mind. That His plan is more glorious than we can imagine. And so if we take things into our own hands, ignore God and think about what and how it affects us, we become essentially self-reliant and self-sufficient. And we are not able to handle that well. 
In fact, it doesn't, it doesn't really end well if we pursue that. And we miss out on what God has provided for us. So how much do we trust God? See, faith and trust are interconnected. We say somebody placed their faith in God. We can also say somebody placed their, places their trust in God. It's, it, they move together. You cannot have faith and say, I don't trust God. You can't say, I am a person of faith, and then, and then turn around and say, God, I'm just not sure if you will do that. And we can put it in all kinds of different terms, and we'll talk about a particular scenario going forward. But it's, it's like a Rubik's Cube. You remember those? Um, I had a, had a friend that could do one of those like in 30 seconds. He'd just do all this. And i just look at it and go, I can't even keep up with your hands, yet alone the things. But every time you turned aside, it changed and affected the other pieces on that cube. And so our faith and our trust in God, they affect each other. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so we know that God is big enough. We know that God is faithful and trustworthy. Then why do we step back from God when it comes to things that affect our lives and choose not to obey Him or follow Him or trust Him? Why do we do that? There's a, a parable given in Matthew chapter 25. We're going to read it. Now let me kind of give you the context. So you turn to it. We'll stand and we'll read that together in a second. But let me give you the context. Jesus is in discussion. As he usually did, he's in discussion and his disciples are around him, but there are others around him. And he's talking about two particular things. One, he's talking about judgment at the end. So when all is said and done, God does places or has judgment. He makes a decision. And so judgment is part of that. How will God judge about the world? How will God judge about the lives of the people around Jesus at that point? Because he's making it personal. It's not, it's not some way out there thing. It's about them and judgment of their lives. So Jesus talks about judgment. The, the other part of this context is the context of return that Jesus will return. So if we have those two contexts, judgment and return. Let's, let's read this because as you read this and see this, figure out where you're at in this, in this parable. How, where do you fit here? Because Jesus always tells parables and encourages us, and if it's not to be known, it's not to be known, but he encourages us to find ourselves in that parable and evaluate where we're at in life. Evaluate our own trust level. So would you stand as we read Matthew 25? We'll start at verse 14. It says this, For it will be like a man going on a journey. So Jesus is starting this story, telling this parable. It says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. So the owner gives what he owns to someone else. And so these servants, they can't claim anything as belonging to them. So that's the first thing we have to understand. He entrusts to them his property, not theirs. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, 
to another one, each according to his ability. So it's a, it's a measured out thing that they're supposed to take care of. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So simple math, five plus five is ten, right? And so also he had, he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So we stop there. We see what these servants did with what the master had given them and entrusted to them. Verse 19. Now after a long time, so it's an unmeasured amount of time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So it's measured to the master, but it's not measured to the servants. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me or entrusted to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. And we hear that quoted all the time, don't we? That's what we want to hear. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward. And listen to the difference in the response or this accountability that takes place here. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went, and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I do not sow or have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So, so we have this servant who had one buried it, and the master comes and says, hey, you could have done the bare minimum by just giving it to a banker and receiving the interest. You didn't even have to double it. Because a banker wouldn't have given you double. But you could have done the bare minimum in increasing what I gave you. And so the talent from him, so, he, so take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he is will be taken. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how you teach us. God, sometimes how you teach us is painful. How you teach us is hard. And yet, in that, we realize that your plan for us is so much more glorious than what we can imagine. So, Father, you as Father, 
as the one that we can call Daddy. Father, as you call us to trust you, even trust you as we examine this parable, Father, may it drive us to hear your voice clear. Father, may it drive us to, if, if we are being convicted, may it drive us to that obedience that brings you glory. And so, Father, take our time this morning and make it beneficial. We get benefit, but God, make it beneficial to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we look at Matthew chapter 25 in the context of judgment and return, there are some things that when we look at this, we will realize about even ourselves. Um, and we can go through here and we can see things like proportional entrusting. That God take it, took what he had, his property, and gave it to servants at different levels. You know, he gave one five, one two, one, one talent, and he did it according to their ability, and he entrusted them with things, and then he asked them to be faithful. Faithful on the front end of being given those things, but, but then they get to be faithful on the back end with responding to what God gives them moving forward. You see, churches, let me just make this statement, we'll get, get into our three big ideas Churches will die because they did not steward the gospel well. You say, that's pretty harsh, isn't it? It is. It's true. Churches will die because they decided to become inward. I was around a church in, in one of the cities and, uh, that we've served in, and they had a pool that was for members only, and that's what the sign said. So they became a very inward-looking church. Now, they're probably still around. But they might as well be dead. And there are churches that will die because they decided not to steward what God would give them well. So when we look at this, we cannot let fear or apathy or complacency drive us as individuals or as a church. And that's the tension, is to have faith, in God, while discerning what God wants us to do. And we, we have that tension in our lives as individuals, and we have that tension in our lives in church. Will we have faith, and how will we discern how we are to live that out? And so there are three big ideas this morning. The first one is that God owns it all. God owns it all. Look at what Psalm 50, verse 10 says. Psalm 50, verse 10 through 12 says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. And you don't have to drive very far to see some of that. And you go, that cow belongs to God. That cow belongs to God. Have you ever done that? Uh, when, we were, when our kids were, were little, we go, hey, there's a cow. Yeah, it belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. And it's not that, that God's going... Um, on that thousand and first hill, that's, that, that cow's not mine. 
No, it's, it's a, the idea that everything is God's. A cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the hills and all, the moves, all, and all that moves in the field is mine. And listen to what God says. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. Why? For the world and its fullness are mine. It's not like you can provide for God. God already owns it all. And when we decide that God does not own it, we say, wait a minute, God, that's mine. You can't touch it. You're not allowed to have that. That's a piece that, that is off limits for you. Then we forget that faith and trust are connected. There's a story I read this week about a preacher who was invited to a lunch at a, a very wealthy estate owner's home. And he went to lunch, and after the lunch was over, they decided to walk around the gardens of that home. And in my mind, what I pictured was Biltmore Estate. When I think a big estate, I might, you know, might as well go big. And so I thought, okay, dinner there, lunch there after church, and then we'll just walk around the grounds and look around. And the, the estate owner asked the preacher a question. So all that I'm looking at, it's not mine? And the preacher stopped for a second and turned back to him. He says, ask me that in 100 years. It's not. Everything that you own belongs to God, whether you realize it or not, because you are not taking it anywhere. You're not going to be able to take it to the grave. You may pass it down from generation to generation, but you still do not own it. God does. God owns it all. Secondly, God entrusts the right amount. So what has God entrusted to you? What has He entrusted to you? What has He entrusted to the church? He's entrusted the gospel to us. 1 Corinthians 4.1 says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. When we take our lives out of being a steward of the mystery of God, we take ourselves out of the plan of God and the glory of God and all that God has for us. We're stewards of the mystery of God if we belong to the church. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making His appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the message. That's that ambassadorship. We're not to be silent ambassadors in a room off to the side say, we represent God and we're not going to do anything about it. If we're going to be ambassadors for God, we need to step out and entreat people or beg people to come to know Jesus Christ, whether that means just befriending a neighbor or going somewhere on behalf of Christ and proclaiming Him out loud to somebody. God entrusts the right amount in our homes and families. We're to steward relationships, our material possessions. Something that God has entrusted to us. Maybe it's a house or an apartment. Maybe it's a tent. Maybe He's entrusted the job that you have to you. He's entrusted your wallet or your checkbook. Martin Luther said this, he said, There are three conversions necessary 
for eternal life. Now, now I want to tell you that don't, don't judge this on doctrine or, or a theology, okay? Because you're going to go, uh-uh, not exactly. Well, think, think through it a little bit. Three conversions necessary for eternal life. Conversion of the heart, the mind, and the wallet. The latter is the most resistant. Does God have control of the wallet? So we want God to be in control of certain things and not in control of other things. I was, um, when we were in Kentucky, we hadn't been there but maybe six months, six, eight months. And an F5 tornado came through the town. We just moved into a house. Um, we had satellite, and you know, if you know anything about satellite TV and all that kind of stuff, when storms are really bad, you get no signal. And so we didn't have any warning. We didn't have our stuff set up for that. And this tornado came through, and, and me, like a, like a really wise person, I went out on the back porch. Because when a tornado's coming, that's where you go, right? So I went outside, I went, I went walked back in, I said, Deb, the, the sky looks a little green. And she was like, I think you ought to get inside. And so we you know, went, went inside, we didn't really do a whole lot, and we didn't know that it was a tornado that was that big, that close, until after everything was over, and one of the news channels had a camera on top of the hospital, and they showed a picture of it with lightning flashing. And it was massive. All we knew as, as that thing passed through, and part of our staff was in Pascagoula on the, the hills of Katrina, um, but we were, we were in that town, and we started receiving calls from church members and say, here's our situation. And so we got in the, in the vehicle and started going out, and we went down this road where we knew some of our church members lived and rode down the road, and it was like, I know Chris lives there, but the house is not there. Well, there's part of a house. The first story of his two-story home was there. And so he looked a little closer with all the chaos and all the debris, looked over, and there's Chris. And another guy on the top floor collecting toys that were left there by the tornado. Everything else is gone. Church across the street, Family Life Center, gone. Then we went to another person's house and, and saw the, the massive amount of trees that had fallen in their yard, a little bit of everywhere, including on top of the house. And you realize that within seconds, the material possessions that you thought were yours don't mean a whole lot. It's the, it's the 10 cent toy from McDonald's, McDonald's Happy Meal that you start to grab because it's all that's left of your possessions. God has entrusted us and yet calls us to be faithful in how we manage those things, to be stewards. Malachi 3.10 says this. It says, bring the full tithe. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. If we just stop there and say, God, what are you saying? Because this, this passage is not about money. This passage is about relationship and trust. 
So we, we kind of look at it and say, God, you're meddling in somewhere where you shouldn't be. And yet God is saying, if you trust me, we're talking relationship, you ought to trust me with all that you have. So bring the full tithe, and, and one version says the full tenth, or one-tenth, into my storehouse, that there may be, may be food in my house. What's my house? Does God need that? Remember what we said just a couple minutes ago. If I were hungry, I would not ask you, because I own it all. So is this food that God is relying on for sustenance? No. God doesn't need that. But that, that money into the house enables the house to do what the house is supposed to do. In this case, this was, a, this was about coming to the relationship with God and talking about the, the temple, and dealing with the temple, and all that went on in the temple. And so if we put these in modern terms, we'd say God would say, you're robbing me in tithes and offerings, you bring the full tenth into the house of God and see what ministry I do out of your church. And yet, I want to keep my wallet away from God. Why cannot the church do all the ministry that God had planned in that glorious presentation of you? Because we won't be obedient. And it's obvious, when we start working through budget things, it's obvious that not everybody is bringing a full tithe into the storehouse. Hey, that's, that's not even rocket science. That's easier to figure out than who voted for who in this last election. So bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now listen to the second part of this because you go, well, you know, that's so painful if I do that. Listen to this. And thereby put me to the test. See if I won't do something, says the Lord of hosts if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So see two things in that. One, there's no more need at the end of that, that phrase at the end of the verse. So the need is not there. So there's no reason to beg because it's voluntary. But the, the, the other part of that, this I will pour out a blessing for you, is, is a, a, a different word. It means that I will take what I have and I will pour it out, and I will continue to do that until everything is out of the container. It's to the last drop. I'm going to pour out that kind of blessing on you if you're obedient. Second Corinthians 9, 5-7 talks about that cheerful giver, but, but hear, hear what Paul said about that when he talked about I'm collecting this, or that money gets collected, I want to send it immediately, because why? So that you won't fall into being covetous. That you won't look at the pile of money that's been collected and want to hold on to it after you see it. I've seen this played out in churches where a, a revivalist comes to, to town, a love offering is taken, and the church looks at it and says, man, that's a lot of money, I'm not sure he deserves that. Say, why don't we just hold back some of those funds for our expenses regarding this revival? And take care of that. And maybe even put some away for next year so we can publicize next year. 
That's the fear that Paul has with this. Be a cheerful giver, but get rid of it fast so you don't look at it and go, oh man, that's too much. I need to put some back. God calls us to be cheerful givers. Then he's entrusted the church to us. You say, what do you mean? Well, there are people that are uniquely gifted. The group of people that were up here just a few minutes ago, uniquely gifted. You are uniquely gifted. The people that put together the wall and the lights and all the stuff out there, the paint on the, on the tables and, and all that stuff, uniquely gifted. God has given us people resources. God has also given us property, two campuses to, to have and to use. And these two campuses don't come with some, uh, without an obligation. We like the privilege, but we also have the responsibility. So if we're going to own two campuses, we are responsible for two campuses. We can't say just because we own it that we can neglect it and keep moving forward. We are responsible for not just paying for the property, but the upkeep of the property. And so when you look at the budget, you say, why, why in the world do we have to do this with certain things or, or borrow money for this? It's because when a foundation of a building is rotted out and needs to be fixed, it needs to be fixed. And we are responsible for that. God has entrusted us with those kind of things. He's entrusted us with the carpet in this room. You say, ah, what do you mean? At some point, this carpet's going to have to be replaced. We're entrusted with that. We're entrusted with how we take care of things. So our church, our two campuses to be built and, and our upkeep. And then God's entrusted us with the provisions. And so whether we have five talents or two talents or one talent, the finance team gets together and it's up to them in, in so many ways, and, and it's up to others in, in, the, um, in the using of funds to be very diligent and discerning when we use those to be good stewards of what God has given us. And the finance team is over that particular part. And so whether we have a million dollars to deal with or thousand dollars to deal with the finance team gets to discern what to do with that we may disagree with them we may agree with them but we are still stewards of what God has entrusted to us and we have no more to deal with than what God has entrusted it wasn't the servant who had five that was responsible for the one that had two or the one that was one responsible for the one that had ten God apportioned it according to our ability. And so God entrusts us with these things. To be a steward means this. Um, Tim Cool wrote this in a book. He entitled the book Entrusted, which obviously I stole the title, okay? Um, but he entitled it Entrusted, and it's about the financial stewardship of properties and buildings. He's a, he's a building maintenance kind of guy. And he wrote this book about how to steward your building. He said, a steward is someone who has been given a task to complete by someone else or who has been given something by someone else for the purpose of the owner. Now, I want you to catch something in here. Who is the focus of the entrusting? 
Who's the focus? Is it the one who's been given things? Who's the focus? Who is it for? It's the owner. It's the one who did the entrusting. The owner gave five, gave two, gave one. The owner, God, has given us. So he ought to be and has the right to expect that we would be intentional about what he has given us. Third thing, God guides our stewardship. Notice the understanding in that passage in Matthew 25, the understanding of the owner by the stewards, by those servants. First guys, they seemed to understand. They went out and multiplied. The last guy, I'm fearful. I don't want to step somewhere that I shouldn't step, and therefore I'm fearful, so I'm just going to hide it. I'm going to hoard it. But not, not because I'm get, I get to keep it, because I'm going to end up giving it back. You see, God has invested in us. God's invested in us. Ephesians 2.10 says, says that we are His workmanship. That God is crafting and crafting us or, or putting us together as a tapestry to show who He is. We are His workmanship and we work and, and operate in a way that shows how good God is. We've been created for good works. Philippians 1.6 says that He will complete us. That that work He began in us at our salvation, when we trusted Him for our salvation, He is not done with us and He will continue to work in us so that we become a complete vessel that's able to show the glorious nature of our God. And we are given on-the-job training in this See, God has led you to where you're at. You say, I don't like where I'm at. What is God trying to do in your life? And that's the question. What is God trying to accomplish by having you where you're at? And a lot of times we run to somewhere else because we don't like what God's doing in that particular spot. And so we go and chase something else thinking it's going to be better when all the time God, remember, He has this glorious plan. He is coming behind and saying, you know what, I have this glorious plan and whether I teach you here or I teach you here or I teach you here, if you really trust me, I'm going to teach you somewhere. And so we end up being like a, a Jonah running from God because we don't want to be taught. We don't want the pain of that teaching. God has led us to where we're at, and He's expecting us to be a good steward. So let's go back and think context here for a second. First one was judgment, right assessment, or right accountability. In this passage, when God is talking and Jesus is telling this parable, in this context of judgment and return, Remember what the Pharisees were, were doing is they were putting hurdles and hindrances in the lives of the, the common folk, if you will. And they weren't allowing people to see the gospel of salvation through Christ. So that was one part of judgment. The other one has to do with disobedience. Am I being disobedient to what God has entrusted me with? 
thereby creating a hurdle for others. If I'm not faithful in what God has given me, am I creating a hindrance or a hurdle for those that don't know Christ? Another way to put this, if we were all obedient, who gets to hear the gospel? Or, the flip side of that, who doesn't get to hear the gospel because we're not obedient? So we own this. We own part of that responsibility to take the gospel elsewhere. The second part of this is the return, the urgency of the gospel or the proclamation of the gospel. Matthew 24, 42 says, Therefore be on the alert. Now this sounds a whole lot like the servants who invested their talents. Sounds a whole lot like that, not knowing when the master would come home. So therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Sounds very familiar. But we realize that our job as stewards of the gospel is important. Matthew 24, 12, so we go back just a little bit. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to or in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Then the end will come. So many of us have spent the last eight months saying, Jesus, would you hurry up and come back? Because we hate COVID. We hate being separated. We hate wearing masks. We want to have Thanksgiving, Christmas, and all the rest of it. We want that, so hurry up and come back. Because if we don't, if you come back and we don't get to do that, we're okay with that. We're just not okay with life right now. So Jesus, hurry up and come back. And maybe Jesus is turning around and saying, if you would be good stewards of what I've given you and we get the gospel to every nation and do well at that, then I will return. So what part do we own that delay. I know it's kind of weird. It's a hard thing to grasp. But there's a responsibility of the church. And I realize there's a church on every corner here, but there are places where there are no churches. And we have responsibility for that. We need to feel the weight of that as we give. So we need to get busy. So let me ask you some questions. We'll wrap up. First question is this, are you ready for Jesus to return? Now, I mean, if he busted in the door, we'd be in some ways okay, and some of us would want to, well, most of us would probably just fall down because there's a glory that comes with that. But are we ready for Jesus' return? Are we prepared spiritually? Remember, the context of this is judgment. It's ultimate judgment. But if you don't have a relationship with Christ, then you will miss out on eternity in the presence of God. And so there's an urgency to even coming to Him and saying, God, I trust you with my life. And so we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead. We'll be saved. So are you prepared for Jesus to return? The second question, how are you stewarding what God has entrusted to you? How are you stewarding what God has entrusted to you? So if we just start there, instead of asking the question, how well is the church stewarding what has been entrusted to the church, let's start with, how are you with 
what God has entrusted to you. Because if you respond well to that, it's easy for the church to do what it's supposed to do. Third question. What are you fearful of that keeps you from being obedient with your time, your bank account, and your relationships? What part is fearful? Remember the third servant. You're a hard man. I'm afraid. You operate in fear. You'll never enjoy completely the glory that God has planned, even in this life, that abundant life that starts at the point of salvation. So what are you fearful of that keeps you from being obedient with your time, bank accounts, or relationship? See, God has put us in a position where we find ourselves in that story saying, how good of a steward am I of what God has entrusted? We can take everything and entrust him with everything we have and understand he's big enough to take care of us at every point of need and will pour out on us a blessing that we cannot imagine. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and when we think about stewardship we think about our responsibility how well have we done we get to evaluate that in light of your word and so father there may be some in this room that need to spend time at this altar To not let pride get in the way. Not let fear get in the way. But come here and be obedient to you. Father, there may be one in this room that has never received Jesus Christ as their Savior. And today is the day to trust you with their life. Father, that's the first part of stewardship is just giving up control and saying, God, you own it all, including me. And so, Father, I pray for that one that may be struggling with their salvation, that they would nail that down today, have it settled for now and for eternity. So, Father, I pray that at this time, as Owen leads us, that we would be um, open to not just hearing your voice, but responding in a way that glorifies you. So, Father, work in our time of invitation and our time of commitment to your praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're here this morning and need to accept Christ as Savior, I'll be here. Pastor Jeremiah is here this morning. There are others that would be willing to talk to you about that, answer any questions. But if there's another issue, an issue of stewardship or obedience or trust, this altar is open. And I'd venture to say that, that we ought not be judgmental as somebody that walks down and prays. We ought to rejoice that, that they are doing business with the God of all creation today. And not walking out of here saying, I'll deal with God later. That they are 
giving it up today and saying, God, I'm yours. All that I am and all that I own, I'm going to recognize that as yours. So as God leads you this morning, be obedient and bring Him praise and glory in this place. Would you stand? As God leads you today. The head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. The Savior knelt to wash our feet. Now at His feet we bow. who wore our sin and shame now robed in majesty the radiance of perfect love now shines for all to see your name your name is a victory all praise will rise to christ our king your name your name is a victory all praise will rise to christ our king that held us now gives way to him who is our peace his final breath upon the cross is now alive in me your name your name is a victory all praise will rise to christ our king your name your name is a victory all praise will rise to christ our king By your spirit I will rise from the ashes of defeat. The resurrected King is resurrecting me. In your name I come alive to declare your victory. The resurrected King is resurrecting me. By your spirit I will rise from the ashes of defeat the resurrected king is resurrecting me and in your name i come alive to declare your victory the resurrected king is resurrecting me the resurrected king 
He's resurrecting me. The tomb where soldiers watched in vain was borrowed for three days. His body there would not remain. Our God has robbed the grave. Our God has robbed the grave. Your name, your name is victory. All praise will rise to Christ our King. Your name, your name is a victory. All praise will rise to Christ our King. We serve a great God. God that has glorious plans for us and for His church. May we be faithful to what we've been called to do and to be stewards of for his glory. Um, we're going